Awesome. Well, thanks, Sarah Beth, and good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here at uh, the Medina East Campus. And uh, as you can probably tell uh, from the title of our series and the subtitle, uh, what we've been doing in this series, Far From Normal, is uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. So we've been spending eight weeks um, in the book of Acts, just kind of looking at this phenomenal book that's um, in the New Testament. And if you've been with us, this is actually week seven of this series. If you've been with us for the previous weeks, you might remember that we kind of set the big idea of this series. And really, uh, for that matter, the big idea in the book of Acts has been this. We've been saying that the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary, that the Holy Spirit um, makes the extraordinary ordinary. So that's kind of been the big idea throughout this whole series. We've been saying that in the book of Acts, what we've been finding is that the book of Acts is really all about the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so there's over uh, 60 explicit references to the Holy Spirit we, we find throughout the book of Acts. And so we've been saying that really the book of Acts is about how the Holy Spirit redefines the Christian life. And uh, what does a life of a person look like who's empowered by the Holy Spirit? What does the life of a person look like who is led by the Holy Spirit? And that's what the book of Acts helps us with. And so what we've been saying is, we've been saying if, if, for those of us who are Christ followers, and of course I know not everyone in the room today is a Christ follower, but we've been saying for those of us who are Christ followers, the book of Acts really does, it kind of gives us a picture of what the normal Christian life should look like. The Holy Spirit redefines normal. The Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. And so we've been going through this series and we've been looking at examples of kind of how the Holy Spirit does that, kind of the normal work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. And that's kind of what we've been doing in this series. Now, I will say again that if you're a guest with us this morning, man, just thanks so much for being here. Like Sarah Beth said, we hope uh, you get a chance to go to our Welcome Center in the cafe after the service. Grab that gift that we have for you. Hopefully you stick around for a little while. Don't just jet out. Maybe get a chance to meet a few people. Um, but I will say that because we're in week seven of this series, that if at any point we say anything that's intriguing to you or uh, maybe causes some questions, uh, we'd encourage you to go to our website, graceohio.org, and you can either watch the previous sermons in the series, or you can download the podcast if you want to, and uh, you can listen to that on your drive to work, or uh, when you're jogging, or whatever, just as a way of catching up. But uh, as we're continuing in the series today, we're just going to keep going right on through. We're going to look at Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, let's just go ahead and get right to it. Take your Bibles with me. We're going to go to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts 19. And... Um, let me just say that if, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's totally fine. We actually have some for you. And so hopefully there in front of you somewhere in the chair, you can grab one of those Bibles, the black Bibles that we have. You can turn to page 774. Uh, that's going to be the passage we're looking at in Acts chapter 19, so you can go ahead and flip there. And also, let me say, if you're a guest with us, once again, um, we hope that, uh, that, that you feel welcome. And if you don't have a Bible, like if you just flat out don't own a Bible, or if you don't own a newer translation of the Bible, would you do me a favor and just take one of ours? Okay, make it a gift from us to you. You can write your name in it. You're not stealing it. You're taking it because I gave it to you, and we want you to have one. We think it's really important that everyone has a Bible, and so you can do that. Um, as you're flipping to Acts chapter 19, I just want to let you, let, let you know that this passage we're going to look at is a really great passage, and um, we're going to see in this passage that things are going to get really heated. Okay? In fact, this passage ends in a citywide riot. And so there's a flat-out riot that breaks out as a result of what we're about to see in Acts chapter 19. So this is an awesome passage. Um, but before we look at that, I feel like in order for us to really understand the intensity of this passage, in order for us to really understand the tension that exists as a result of this, that we need to understand something about the historical context of what's going on in Acts chapter 19. So let me give you a little background as far as what's going on in Acts 19. Okay? So Acts 19, the whole chapter, takes place in a city that's called Ephesus, okay, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, back in this time, 
would have been a very prominent city in the ancient world. It was a Roman province. In fact, it was arguably the most important of the Roman provinces. So it was a, it was a, a strategic political city. Uh, in addition to that, it was a very affluent city. It was a very progressive city. And so uh, they, were, they were very cultured. So for example, they would have had a lot of colleges, a lot of schools. Um, they would have had a lot of libraries. Uh, they had uh, one of the things that Ephesus was notorious for was their amphitheater. In fact, I'll show you a picture. You can actually go visit this today. This is in um, modern-day Turkey. This is where Ephesus was. And there's this awesome coliseum that was there. This amphitheater, archaeologists uh, estimate, could seat about 25,000 people. This is huge. So they were progressive. Um, archaeologists are finding houses in Ephesus. The houses were very advanced for their time. They had heated bathrooms. Many of them did. I don't even have that. Uh, they had, uh, some of them had indoor plumbing. And I mean, this was just, it was a very advanced city. So it was very progressive. But the thing that Ephesus was most known for, and this is what's, what I want to really draw your attention to, the thing that Ephesus was most known for was it was known for its spirituality and its worship. It was a very spiritual culture. And so um, they were known for things like uh, magic and sorcery and divination, things that in our culture, many of us would consider folklore. Um, but in their culture, it wasn't that way. These were very prominent things that were a major part of their cultural fabric. And uh, at the very center of Ephesus, uh, the, the thing that would have, Ephesus would have been most known for was a, a certain temple. And I'll show you a picture of an artist's rendition. Um, this is the, the Temple of Artemis, or as might also be known, the Temple of Diana. And Artemis was considered, or Diana was considered the fertility goddess. And this was a temple that was erected to her uh, in her tribute. And so there was an image of Artemis that would have been contained in this. This was, just to so you get some bearing of understanding, this was the largest building in the ancient world. It was huge. Uh, it had over 120 columns, as you can kind of see here. The entire thing made entirely of marble. Beautiful, ornate. They spared no expense. They spared no detail. Um, each of those pillars would have been over 60 feet tall. This actually, some of you might know this, this is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, this particular thing. Now, now it's kind of ancient ruins. There's a few columns that are left. But this would have been the centerpiece of Ephesus. This was sort of like the thing that they were known for. This was, this was uh, kind of their trademark, right? It was the crown jewel of their culture. And I'm telling you all that because I want you to understand that the city of Ephesus was very different than our culture in that the thing that it was known for its corporate identity as a city was its spirituality, its, its, its worship of gods and goddesses like Artemis, magic, sorcery, those type of things. So, so think about it this way. In our culture today, right, there are certain cities in America that represent certain values. So when I say politics, when we think about politics, what is the city that is the epicenter of the political world in our culture? What would it be? It'd be Washington, D.C., right? That's what comes to our mind when we think of that. Or if I, if I talk about film, we talk about movies, making movies. What is the city that we all tend to think of when we think of that? We think of Hollywood, right? Hollywood, California. If we're thinking about gambling, fast living, what are you thinking of? Vegas, right? If you're thinking of country music, you're thinking of Nashville, Tennessee. If you're thinking about Satan worship, you're thinking about Pittsburgh, right? Yes, exactly. And, uh, yeah. And for Pittsburgh fans, if you're thinking about losing, you're thinking about Cleveland, right? And so I'll eat my humble pie on that as well. But, uh, but so Ephesus, what was Ephesus known for? Its corporate identity was spirituality. That's what it was known for. Okay, so I want you to understand that this culture is very different than ours, and that's going to help explain the tension that arises in this passage. So for them, 
in our culture, worship and, and spirituality is not a central part of our culture. It's a peripheral part. Magic and sorcery is not a major part of our culture. It's folklore in our culture. That was in Ephesus, very, very different place. Now, here's what happens in the Acts chapter 19. The apostle Paul comes into Ephesus all right, with his, some of his cohorts, and the Bible tells us that he comes in. These people have never heard the message of Jesus, and he begins to preach the message of Jesus to these people. For two years, he does this. And the Bible tells us that over the course of two years, that there are some people who begin turning from um, their former way of living, and they become Christians. They start to become Christ followers. And as many of you know, when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit then comes and takes up residence inside of that person, and the Holy Spirit begins to transform them. And so this is what happens. We see that the Holy Spirit begins to transform the believers in Jesus in Ephesus. And the result... It's pretty amazing. So let me, let me show you what happens. We're going to start in verse 18. So in verse 18, here's what it says what happens in chapter 19. It says that many of those who believed, okay, so that's talking about many of the Ephesians who now became Christians, many who believed, right? They now came and they openly confessed what they had done. So they came to know Jesus and now they started to go public. They started to tell people that they were following Jesus, okay? Look what happens, verse 19. A number of them who practiced sorcery, remember that was a normal thing for them, they brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Right, so here's what happens. The Bible says the Apostle Paul comes in, begins preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus. Over the course of about two years, some people start to come to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit starts to transform their lives. And the Bible says a result of the transformation, these people begin to look at their former way of living, and they realize that it's incompatible with their lifestyle of following Jesus. And so the Bible says they begin to take these idols, they begin to take these, um, these scrolls, these, these documents that would have been kind of books about magic and sorcery, and they bring them out in public, and they burn them. And the Bible tells us that this was such a large event. The author lets us know that they calculated the total of how much it would have cost all of those items together. And it was a total of 50,000 drachmas. Just so you understand, uh, that would be about the equivalent in that time of 135 years worth of wages. Okay? So this is not a, a small sum of money. This is a large sum of money. This would be millions of dollars for us. And here's what I want you to know about that. Okay? For these people to do that, it wasn't like they were just simply stopping a little hobby. Okay, this would have been a radically uh, life-altering decision for them. They were denouncing their former way of living, and they were announcing publicly that, now, nah, man, I'm with Jesus. I'm following Jesus. They, they were literally, what they were doing was they were, they were burning, they were sacrificing, they were demolishing the idolatry, the idols that they worshipped to turn to follow Jesus. Now, now, let me tell you what we're doing today, all right? Uh, we've been talking about in this series that the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. And when the Holy Spirit comes in a person's life, he makes the extraordinary ordinary. Here, here's what I want to argue today. I want to argue that the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, in a person who follows Jesus, and once again, I know that's not everyone. I know not everyone follows Christ. Some of us are investigating Jesus, and that's okay right now. But for those of us who follow Jesus, the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives is that the Holy Spirit actively and aggressively wants to confront idols, idolatry in our heart. And, and, and here's the thing. I know that when I say the term idolatry, 
Uh, for many of us who might be vaguely familiar with that, we're like, okay, I, I kind of get that. You know, I know the Bible's like really against it. I know that that's the first of the Ten Commandments is about idolatry, about not having idols, right? Uh, but you're like, but what exactly is that? And what does that look like in my life? And what does that look like in like 21st century America, you know, for us to have um, idols? And here's what I want to argue. I want to argue the Holy Spirit wants to confront idols in our lives and that this is true, that idols are much more of a problem than we think they are. The chances are good that idolatry is a major problem in your heart and it's in, in my heart too. And you might not even know it. And the second thing is that idolatry is far, more, um, is far less obvious than we know. Okay, so we're gonna look at this passage and my hope is that by the help of the Holy Spirit this morning and through the word of God that, uh, that God might actually do some work in us and help us confront maybe some of the idols that we have in our own hearts. So having said that, why don't we just take a moment, let's pray, let's just ask God to help us uh, right now, and then we're gonna go back to the passage and look a little bit more as we kinda go hunting uh, for idols. So let's pray together. Jesus, I wanna say thank you um, for letting us get together this morning. I love Sunday morning. I love being together here because we come together to meet you. That's why we're here. We wanna hear from you. Um, and God, we want you to work in our lives. And so right now, in this moment, we want to acknowledge, God, that we invite you to come in. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work. And we ask that you would help us to search the recesses of our own hearts. Pray that you would help us reveal anything, God, that, um, that is a, a form of idolatry in our own hearts. And so God, we ask that you'd use your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would use this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's what happens, right? Paul comes in, preaches the gospel. A bunch of people burn stuff publicly as a way of announcing, we're following Jesus now, we're not doing that anymore. And, uh, and I'm telling you, the result is, is, is unbelievable. The whole city gets turned upside down. So let's just take a look at what happens. Get your Bibles again, look at verse 23. It says, about that time, okay, about what time? About the time they burnt all that stuff, right? About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, about the way now, let me just point out real quick on that. You might notice that the word way is capitalized there. Why is that? Here's why. Back in this time, um, it wasn't called Christianity yet. It was still too new. They didn't, so no one called it anything. So when people followed Jesus, they just called it following the way. So the Bible tells us that there was a great disturbance that arose concerning Christianity, right? So check this out, verse 24. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, and he brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So the Bible introduces us to this guy, a guy named Demetrius. The Bible tells us that Demetrius was a craftsman. So this is what he would do for a living, okay? He lived in Ephesus, and he would make shrines of the goddess Artemis out of silver or out of gold or out of some kind of precious metal. He would make images of the temple. So, so remember, Ephesus was like the epicenter, right, of worship back in this culture. So people from the world, all over the ancient world would come to Ephesus to see this incredible temple to worship this goddess, uh, Artemis. And then what they would do is they would go to like, I guess for the lack of a better term, they'd go to like a gift shop and they would buy like a little shrine of Artemis and they would take it home so that way they could kind of worship in their own living room, all right? So that's what this guy did for a living. He made those shrines. He made little idols of gold and of silver. That's what he did for a living. So the Bible says that after this whole burning took place, that, that uh, Demetrius kind of had a problem with all that and so he called a meeting, all right? Look at this meeting in verse 25. He called 
them together, along with all the workers and the related trades. So he called all the craftsmen together. And he said, so he begins his argument with them, says, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. He's like, you guys know we make a lot of money doing this, right? In other words, he's like, you guys understand that we have found an incredible money-making opportunity. Everyone from all over the world is coming to Ephesus to worship at this temple, and we are in the business of making shrines that people buy, right? This is an incredible money-making opportunity. This would be like owning a casino in Vegas, right? Or this would, this would be like, you know, selling Mickey Mouse ears at Disney World for $5,000 is what they do. Anyway, that's what this, this is a money-making opportunity. So he's like, you guys know we're making a ton of cash off of this right now. And then look what he says here. He says, and you see in here, verse 26, how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says... The gods that are made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, once again, this would have been a problem for these guys, right? Because what did they do for a living? Um, they made gods with their hands, right? And so the Apostle Paul's like, gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And they're like, that's a problem for us because that's exactly how we make our money. And now the Bible says that a bunch of people started to make some decisions to follow Jesus and they started burning this stuff and uh, they're like, this is, a this is a serious problem for us. Verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it doesn't take much for us to, to read right in between the lines about this guy, Demetrius, what he's really all about, right? Here, of course, he says, he's like, you guys, um, we're going to lose a lot of money. And we're going to lose business. And, and of course, not to mention, you know, this, this God is also, that, that whole thing, that's a problem too, right? What we notice about Demetrius, Demetrius doesn't really care about the desecration of the goddess of Artemis. He cares about his checkbook. That's what he really cares about. You can tell. One of the other reasons we know that, by the way, is because the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus preaching this message for two years in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Nobody cared what Paul taught. It wasn't until... Lives begin to become transformed, and it affected the economic climate of the culture that all of a sudden people started to care. Now, a quick side note on that. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I've noticed this as a follower of Jesus Christ. I've noticed that most people don't really care what I believe, for the most part. If it doesn't affect their life, they don't care what, what, what I believe. They don't care if I go to church on Sunday. They don't care if you go to church on Sunday. They don't care whatever, whatever you want to do. But the moment, right, the moment that my faith actually begins to transform my life for real. Like the moment that my decision to follow Jesus and my belief in the gospel begins to determine the way I spend my money and the way that I follow Jesus determines the way I do entertainment, the way that I follow Jesus changes the way I interact with my family or my marriage, well, then it starts to create some waves, right? And I don't know if you guys have found that, but I know I've found that in my own life, and that's exactly what happens here. Demetrius does not care about what Paul teaches. He just cares that it's affecting his business, right? So check this out. Verse, again, in verse 27, he says, there's danger not only that our trade will lose his good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he's trying to, he's trying to stir up trouble here. And apparently it works, because look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious. Some of you have translations that say they were full of wrath, 
meaning they were frothing at the mouth, angry. They were furious. And they began to shout together, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the Bible says, look at this in verse 29, soon the whole city, this is a big city, the whole city was in an uproar. And let me just kind of summarize for you what happens next because it's pretty incredible. So the Bible tells us that what happens is everyone starts chanting, great is God is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they start this riot. And the Bible says they start collecting people throughout the city. And the Bible even tells us that some of the people that were there didn't even know why they were there. They were just like, I guess we're, we're doing this now. And they went down and the Bible tells us that they all marched down. Remember the picture of the amphitheater I showed you earlier? Let's put that back up there again. They went back down to this, uh, to this, um, this amphitheater. They filled the whole place. And for two hours, they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I love it in the passage because the Bible tells us that the apostle Paul wanted to go in there. And like uh, guys were holding him back. He's like, let me in there. They're like, no, Paul, they're going to kill you if you go in there. And the whole place began to riot. And the Bible says this took place for two hours until finally a public official got up. And it took a public official calming the crowd down saying, you guys, if we keep doing this, um, the Roman, uh, the Roman government's going to come and shut us down, so we better cut it out. It took two hours to silence it. That's pretty amazing, right? The, the gospel is preached, lives are changed, and it causes a riot in the city. Now, I just tell you, I've never seen that happen. I've never seen someone preach the gospel, and it, and it kind of results in a riot breaking out. It's, kinda, it's on my bucket list. It's something that I want to see happen in my lifetime. But, uh, but man, what, what caused that to happen? What was at the source of that tension. Well, I'll tell you what it was. The very source of the tension, and really kind of the heart of this passage, it's all about this idea of confronting idolatry. And, and like I had said previously, the, the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. And one of the ordinary things that the Holy Spirit wants to do is he wants to confront idolatry in our hearts. But I think one of the things that we see that's pretty clear in this passage is that that does not happen without a fight. That, that, that it does not go, it's, we see in this passage that confronting idols is costly. It costs these people a lot, of, a lot, right? But we also see that it can cause riots. So confronting idolatry. So how do, we, how do we look at this and how do we look at our own lives and confront idolatry? So let's just talk about that for a minute. I think if we're gonna start looking at our own heart and our own lives, we have to start um, by just defining it. What is idolatry? Like I said, a lot of us are familiar with this. We've heard this term before, but can you give me a definition? All right, let me give you what I think is probably the clearest definition of what idolatry is really all about. Okay, so I put this. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Um, this is the definition that I put for idolatry. Idolatry, at its heart, is making created things ultimate things. Okay, it's making created things ultimate things. That really is the heart of idolatry. So where do I get this definition? Um, well, I get this definition from this passage and from other passages in the Bible that talk about idolatry. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Glance down with me again, down at verse 26. Notice what um, Demetrius says. He says, and you see and you hear that this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and he, practically the whole province of Asia. Paul says, this is Paul's teaching, gods made by human hands are no gods at all. In other words, Paul says that gods that are created are not actually gods. That created things cannot be gods. That's Paul's teaching. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but in the Bible, 
whenever the apostles, in particular the apostle Paul, whenever they go into a city that's never heard the gospel before, never heard about Jesus, they tell them about Jesus, but they also start talking about the problem of idolatry. They always go hand in hand. So let me give you another example of where the apostle Paul talks about this. He talks about it in Romans chapter one. Here's what he says in Romans chapter one. The apostle Paul says about all of humanity, by the way, all of us, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. They worshiped and they served created things rather than the creator. So here's what, here's what the Bible would tell us idolatry is. Okay? Idolatry is taking created things and making them ultimate things. Idolatry is worshiping a created thing at the expense of the creator rather than the creator. That is what the heart of idolatry is. So the Apostle Paul comes into Ephesus and he sees these people worshiping these shrines that are made by these craftsmen. He's like, you guys, that's not God. That's, that's a created thing. Come on. Use comments. That's not God. Worship the creator, not the created thing. Now here's the thing. I don't know. Maybe you're like me in this and maybe you're not. Um, but one of the things I found with myself is when I read about a culture like Ephesus, one of my natural tendencies is to look at that culture and kind of laugh at it kind of scoff at it. Maybe you're the same way. But I look at it and I go, man, that is so ridiculous. Those guys worshiped like shrines. How dumb is that? They believed in magic and sorcery. I'm like, we all know that stuff is, is, is folklore. They lived in a, in a regressive, primitive, archaic culture, right? They were polytheistic. They were animistic. I'm like, our culture, man, we're post-enlightenment. We're so much smarter now. You know, we got it all together. We, we're intellectual now. We don't believe in any of that stuff. We don't believe in worshiping creative things like they did. So maybe idolatry was a problem for them, but it's not a problem for us, right? I don't know if you think that way, but sometimes I think that way. But listen, I just tell you, that's not true. We struggle with idolatry just as much as that culture did, just in different ways. It looks different because we live in different cultures. You're like, how so? How so? All right, well, let me just give you one example. One of the major things that our culture propagates, and I'm sure you've noticed this, one of the major things that our culture propagates is that you determine for yourself whatever you believe is going to be your ultimate form of happiness and satisfaction. You can decide that. No one can decide that for you. You decide that for yourself. And don't you ever infringe that on anyone else. But you decide that for yourself. So for you, if success is the thing that's going to give you ultimate satisfaction and happiness in your job or in your career, if that's the thing that's really going to give you, make it worth it for you, you go ahead and you pursue that. For you, if beauty is the thing that you want more than anything, right, that, if you believe that's going to give you satisfaction, that's going to give you joy, that's going to give you ultimate fulfillment in life, you go ahead and pursue that. Now remember, what did the Apostle Paul say? Here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, gods created by humans are no gods at all. Let me ask you, are we doing anything different? Are we not creating for ourselves the things that will function as God? The things that will give us fulfillment and satisfaction? The things that we will obey in life? See, what, what Ephesus did overtly, we do covertly. Right? What, what, what Ephesus did obviously, um, we do obliviously. We don't even know it. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We are constantly tempted to worship the created things over the creator. See, the Apostle Paul, what the Bible would tell us, it would say that the fundamental problem with the human heart, the fundamental problem with each and every single one of us is that we all have a natural proclivity, we all have a natural tendency to make created things ultimate things, to make um, things that are created 
um, worship them at the expense of the creator. Think about it like this, all right? I want you to imagine for a minute if you came to my office. If you came to my office, one of the things that you would notice in my office is that I have a bunch of pictures, like most of you guys do. I have pictures all around my office. And some of you guys who have offices, you have pictures, or at your house, you have pictures. All my pictures in my office, I think every single one of them, is of my family, right? So I have all these pictures of my family there. So if you came in, you would notice on the far wall is the, the first thing you'd probably see is a picture of my wife, right? And she's wearing her wedding dress because it, it was on our wedding, obviously. You know, she doesn't wear wedding dresses all the time. And so, um, so you got her over there. And then on the walls around, I got these different pictures of my kids, you know, from different stages in life, when they're babies. I got these, these couple pictures of, um, we went to the summer, we went on vacation, we went to the sand dunes in Michigan, so we got pictures of them. They look real happy, you know, which if you were there for the photo shoot, you know, that was like one moment. And the rest of the photo shoot was a nightmare. But, uh, but we have these pictures, and, and they're there. Why do I have these pictures on my wall? Well, I'll tell you why I have these pictures, the same reason you do. I love my family. I love them. And I want to show them off. So when people come in the office, I want to be like, that's my wife. Totally married out of my league. I know. It's awesome, right? I want to show them my kids. I want to be like, look at how well behaved they are for that one moment in history. You know? And I want to show them off. And the other reason I have those is because I want to be reminded. I want to, remind, I want to be reminded throughout the day um, just in my family. I want to, so I'll look up at these pictures and thank God, man, thank God for my wife. Thank God for my family. Look at my boys. Thank God for them. Certain days, thank God that I'm not with them. You know, just depends on what day, honestly. Just being honest. And so, um, all that kind of stuff. Now, I want you to imagine how, how dumb would it be, how foolish would it be if I desired the pictures of my family over my family. Right, so, on Tuesdays, my family has a, uh, we have a tradition that we, it, we actually started it two years ago when we started this campus. It just became, it's just part of our routine now, is uh, I'll work all day on Tuesday, and then my family will meet me at the office, we'll have dinner together. Most of the time, uh, my wife will bring Chick-fil-A. We used to go to Chick-fil-A on Tuesdays because kids ate free, and then they stopped doing that, which makes me want to start a riot in this city. And, um, but she'll bring Chick-fil-A, and uh, we'll eat together. So, and then after we eat, we go to life group. That's our, that's our Tuesday routine. Every Tuesday, that's what we do. And I want you to imagine how foolish it would be if you could imagine this. Okay, my kids come to my office, and my wife with the bags of Chick-fil-A, she comes in. Imagine how dumb it would be if they came in and my kids came running up, like, Daddy, Daddy, you know, like they do. They're all excited to see me. And imagine that I just totally deflect them. I mean, just flat-out stiff arms, like, boom, boom. And I go right to my wife, who's got the bags of Chick-fil-A, and imagine she's coming at me with a hug. And instead of giving the hug, I deflect the hug, grab the bags, Chick-fil-A, and like spin, and then, uh, and then sit down at the table with the pictures of my family and start eating the Chick-fil-A, right? How dumb would that be? You'd be like, dude, your family is over there, right? That's not your family. Those are pictures of your family, okay? Pictures, we all know, are nothing more than visual representations of the reality. They are not the reality themselves. They're nothing but images. It's paper. That's all it is. They're not going to give me the fulfillment. They're not going to give me the satisfaction. They're not going to give me, they're not going to reciprocate love like my wife and my children are going to reciprocate. They are nothing more than an image, than a picture, than a representation of the reality. You guys, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that the created things of this world are shadows, and that Jesus himself is the substance. That everything that we see, love, sex, 
family relationships, um, all of the things in life that we enjoy, all of those things, the Bible says, are shadows. They are not substance. They're representations of a creator. They are the created things. They are not the creator. And because they're created things, they cannot and they will not give you the fulfillment and satisfaction that only the substance can give you. So, so the Bible says this. The Bible says that the fundamental problem with the human heart for each and every single one of us is that we are constantly, constantly worshiping the created thing at the expense of the creator. We are constantly making created things, success, money, uh, possessions, sexuality. We are constantly making these ultimate things instead of recognizing them as creative things. You see, when I see pictures of my family, what it should do is it should evoke feelings of longing inside of me. Not for the picture, but for the substance, for the reality. And in the same way, when we see things in this world, when we see beauty, when we see, when we see things that bring us joy and satisfaction in this life, we should realize that these are simply shadows. They're images that are intended to point us back to the substance, which is Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul comes into this culture and he says, you guys, stop worshiping created stuff. Worship the creator. Don't worship, don't worship shadows. Worship the substance. Don't worship an image. Worship the reality. There's something far better that God has to offer you and to offer me. That's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that idolatry is short-sighted. We're settling for way less than what God truly desires. So what is idolatry? Here's what idolatry is. It's making created things ultimate things. Now, having said that and giving you a definition, what I want to do right now is I just want to give you a list of questions. Okay, there's some questions that I came up with um, based on this passage and other passages that I thought might be helpful for us to identify maybe idols in our own hearts. And so my hope is that maybe you take some time, pray through some of these things, and be honest with yourself. So let me just walk you through them. Question number one, confronting idols in our lives. What created thing has become an ultimate thing? All right, so that's what we've been talking about. What for you, what created thing has become an ultimate thing? Let me ask it this way. What in your life functions as God? Even if you don't believe in God, something is functioning as God. Something is giving you marching orders. You're obeying something. Uh, what do you believe is gonna give you ultimate fulfillment? What do you believe that, man, if I had that, it would be worth it and I would be worth it. I would be worth something. If I possessed it, what, what do you believe that is? What is functioning as God for you? And that's a great question to ask. What creative thing has become an ultimate thing? Here's some follow-up questions on that. What prayer, if unanswered, would make you seriously think about turning away from God? For those of us who are Christ followers, right? What prayer are you praying right now that if God didn't answer the way you wanted him to? that it would seriously make you contemplate whether or not you wanted to follow God anymore. For some of you, there's stuff like that. So maybe for some of you, you're like, uh, you're praying, God, I don't want to be single. Please bring me someone in my life that I can share life with. Give me a partner. And if God did not give that to you, you would seriously contemplate leaving. You, you seriously contemplate not following Christ anymore. Um, for some of you, um, that could be children. It could be a lot of things. It could be a lot of things. But what thing, if God didn't give it to you, then you're like, I'm out. I'm not, I don't want to follow God if he's not going to allow me to have the thing. For some of you, it's a lifestyle. There's a certain lifestyle that you want. And you're like, if God doesn't give me that lifestyle, then I don't want to follow him. I'll, I'll find it some other way. Right? 
Here's, here's the next question, another follow-up question on this one. This is a good question. This is a painful one. I asked myself this week, and it hurt. You go, what are you willing to disobey God to obtain? What are you willing to say no to God to or to go around God's design so that you can have it? Right? So um, what are you willing to cut corners, to cheat, to lie, steal? Some of you, it's money. So you're willing to cut corners at work. You're willing to um, fudge numbers on your tax returns, lie to have more money, right? For some of you, it's success. So, um, so, so you, you, you lie or do something. You, you, you falsely present yourself in such a way that it makes people think something about you that's not true, right? uh, For some of us, it's sexuality. Sex is an awesome thing that God created. It's a created thing, though. God created it, and the Bible tells us that God created sex with certain parameters, that he designed it in a certain way. And for some of us, we desire sex so strongly in the way that we want it that we will go around God's desires. So that could be pornography for some of us. Uh, for some of us, that could be extramarital relationships. Um, that could be premarital sexuality. That could be homosexual uh, encounters, all of those things, the Bible says, are, are outside of the parameters that God has designed for sex. For some of us, it's that. What are you willing to disobey God to get, to obtain? It could be a number, a myriad of things. Here's the next question. What is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living? What do you feel like if it was taken from you would make you feel as if you had lost your will to live? Um, for some of you, it's beauty, right? It's your looks, it's your appearance. If something were to happen, if that was to be taken away from you, you would feel like you'd lost all your worth. Uh, for some of you, it's your, it's your wealth or it's your health. For some of us, it's our families, it's our kids. Here's the tricky thing. Idols are tricky because they hide, sometimes they hide behind really good things. And sometimes they hide behind things that, from the outward appearance, look like they're very moral and noble things. But, but we have to understand that if it's a created thing, it should never sit in the place of an ultimate thing. Only the creator should sit in that place, right? Here's the last question. I like this one. What causes riots when threatened? And uh, I love this passage because Demetrius, right, we can all see pretty clearly that he has an idol. His idol is his money, right? And so the moment that it's threatened, it causes a riot. And uh, my question to you is what causes a riot in your heart? What causes a riot in your life that if it becomes threatened, oh, you look out. What, here's, here's another way to put it. What changes you from Smeagol to Gollum? You guys remember Lord of the Rings? You guys ever watch that? You remember that character, that, that, that creepy little character guy? His name is Smeagol, but depending on his mood, I guess, he's Gollum. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember in Lord of the Rings, but he had, uh, he had, this, uh, he had this idol. Smeagol had an idol, and it was that ring. Remember what he called his ring? You guys remember he called it my precious. That was the worst impersonation of Gollum ever. Wow. I won't try that again. So, uh, but remember that? It was his precious. And, and man, I'm telling you, the monster came out whenever that thing was threatened. He went from Smeagol to Gollum. And it was like, you're dealing with two different people here. And here's my question to you. What's your precious? What's the thing that if someone touches on it, don't you dare touch that? Don't you dare. Gollum comes out. I thought uh, Pastor Seth, if you guys were here last week, he made an awesome statement. I thought it was so good. He said, he's talking about his daughter and, and um, her DS. You guys remember that? 
And he said, um, he said, I came to realize that it wasn't that my daughter owned the DS, it was that the DS owned my daughter. I thought that was so, so good. And let me ask you, what owns you? What is the topic that if someone, bring, everyone in your family knows you don't bring it up with them? Because if you bring it up, you're getting Gollum. Right? Don't talk about that. For some of you, it's your bitterness. You know your bitterness can be an idol? If your bitterness um, is what directs your life, determines where you go on the holidays, I'm telling you, man, that's tricky stuff. For some of you, everyone's like, we don't talk about that with them. You don't, you don't bring that up with dad. He'll go crazy. He'll be Gollum. Right? What, what, what is it that causes a riot in your, in your heart when that happens? For some of you, it could be your money. It could be, I don't know, your time. It could be so, so many different things. But here's what the heart of idolatry is. And my hope is that as you look at these questions, you can see it. The heart of idolatry is when we make created things ultimate things. When we worship the created at the expense of the creator. And the Holy Spirit, the, the extraordinary, ordinary work of the Holy Spirit is that he wants to confront idols in our lives. So here's what I want to do, all right? I want to actually ask the band to come up. And I'm going to do something a little different this morning because um, I'm convinced that my words are of like this much value. But I believe that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is of much greater value. And so I actually want to give you some space, just some room. I'm going to keep these questions up here. I asked the band just to play some tunes, just maybe play some music, and I want you to just prayerfully do some work with God. And, and go through these questions and ask God, God, if there's something in my heart that's keeping me from you, and help me to see that and to follow you. And, and, and listen, for some of us, uh, who follow Jesus. For some of us, if we see an idol, that means we gotta do something about it, right? It means we gotta do something. For some of us, it means we need to confess it, confess it to God, confess it to a trusted Christian friend that you have, let them know this is an area that I'm struggling with. Some of us, we actually need to take action. Maybe for some of us, we need to burn it. We need to get rid of it altogether. Now, obviously, there's some things you can't do that with. So for example, if your family's your idol, you probably shouldn't burn them. It's just in general, it's a good thing, right? But, but confess it. For some of you, you do need to get rid of it. Maybe you need to put a filter on your computer. Maybe you need to cut something out of your life that is keeping you from Jesus. And listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, for those of us who don't follow Christ, my hope is that maybe we can see, when we look at this passage and we actually think about this idea, my hope is that you understand that when God is against idolatry, the reason that he's against idolatry is not because he's a competitive God who is just, you know, wants to sit in the first chair of your life so he can bark orders at you. The reason that God is so against idolatry is because he really loves us. It's because he knows, he knows that shadows cannot give you anything. He understands that the things that we idolize, that we think are going to give us fulfillment, in turn actually give us nothing and usually leave us dissatisfied and empty and broken inside. He's the creator. This is the created. Why would we settle for second best? And maybe for you for the first time today, you're looking at your life and you're like, I am chasing shadows. These things are not gonna give me the things I hope they would. And maybe for the first time, you wanna turn from those things to the real thing, to the substance, to the creator Jesus. And you could do that this morning if you want to. Pray to him. Ask him, Jesus, would you be my God? Follow him that way. Let me pray, and I'll give you space. And Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. Man, it's refreshing. It's convicting. It's hard. 
And I'm convinced, God, more and more, the more I follow you, that my heart is an idol-making factory. And confronting idols is not like a one-time thing. It's not like I did it and now I'm done. It's like every day something's creeping in. And um, I'm thankful for your grace to us, God. I ask for forgiveness for the times that we are so short-sighted. We are too easily pleased. We settle with created stuff over the creator. And so, Father, I pray you would help us. Help us to follow you, the real you. Not, not the uh, images and the shadows, but the, the substance, the reality. God, you're the only one who can answer us. Created things can't answer us. The creator can. Created things can't give us hope. The creator can. But you're the only one who can actually do this. And so I pray that we would turn our hearts to you, Jesus, this morning. I pray that we'd crush idols. I pray for some of us we'd burn them. That like these people in Ephesus, that we would turn from these ways to following you. And we want to ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.